You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Anthony Pompliano, author of the newsletter, The Pomp Letter, is a must-read, daily read if you're interested in anything at all in Bitcoin or crypto. It's getting larger every year, the whole Bitcoin, crypto ecosystem like it's part of the economy people are doing transactions and there are literally thousands if not tens of thousands of potential business models that are going to be built on top of this we're still in inning zero of bitcoin and crypto and anthony papiano's newsletter is right now the premier newsletter about this the guy is really smart i wanted him to answer questions i had about bitcoin he did it he was great and part one talks about why Bitcoin? I question about what are the uses of Bitcoin and where's it going? His answers surprised me. And part two is all the other stuff. Like what are the next big milestones that are going to happen for crypto that's going to make crypto potentially explode? We talk about all the other at a very high level. We talk about like DeFi tokens, NFT tokens, and he explains everything in a way that was very unique to me. Here we go. This is part one. Here's Anthony Pompliano. 
you know, if you look at the history of the internet, started around, you know, 1970, 1969 with email and the internet protocol, but it wasn't until, you know, 20 years later that the web was developed and people outside of just the academic community and the defense department knew what the internet was. And even then it was, oh, it's just a fad. It's going to go away. People were saying that until uh, like 2002, 2003. Oh, it's just a fad. And now here we are. It's part of everybody's life all day long, every day. And I feel like the same thing is happening with Bitcoin, but we're still in that phase where people are not sure if this is a fad or not. And I think they understand Bitcoin's a digital currency and that, and, and, you know, the benefits of a digital currency over other currency, like you don't have a bank in the middle, you don't, there's no, uh, there's less fraud, there's no for forgery. Uh, there's nobody who's deciding the value of your dollar by printing up more of it because that's all regulated by the code. So they understand that, but I kind of want to just, I want to ask you some basic questions and you're the expert. So I'm going to explain who you are in the intro, but so, so we don't have to do that, but you're the expert. I, your newsletter is probably the one or two newsletters I read religiously every single day because you're always on top of what the latest is happening with Bitcoin. You're, it doesn't seem like you're, obviously you, you like Bitcoin and crypto, but it's not like you're biased. It's not like you're hiding negative news, um, which I see in some other newsletters. It's always like, it's always a vacation in crypto world and some other newsletters. And hard you know, to hard to be on vacation when it goes down 80 <laughs> percent yeah no i mean that's the reality like you know i i've been a fan of bitcoin since 2013 and i was on cnbc then talking about it i of course i was on it a lot in 2017 2018 and then people were like all over me because bitcoin went from 20,000 to 3,000 and now of course that it's at 56,000 nobody contacts me at all about any of that stuff but that's par for the course but I'm a believer and, but sometimes I wonder. So I want to ask you the questions I have. I'm, I'm always a beginner, beginner's mind. And so let me start off by saying, well, first off, how did you get involved in crypto? Yeah, I got started off with mining. Um, I literally in 2016 started to mine, uh, actually started with ether and then over time started to build kind of larger and larger mining facilities. Uh, and then eventually migrated from GPU mining to uh, uh, ASICs and Bitcoin and kind of got much more involved in, uh, in that side of the market. Okay, great. And so, and then when did you decide to start a newsletter? I didn't start the newsletter until May of 2017, or no, I'm sorry, May of 2018. And I started it after being on Twitter for about a year and a half and really trying to grow the Twitter audience. And it was explicitly because I was nervous that one day my Twitter account would get shut down. And so I said, I probably need to have a second platform and email seemed to be the one that had the least amount of risk. Uh, and then from there it kind of grew. Yeah. Like with an email audience, you control your audience. You choose yourself. Basically you don't let Twitter choose whether you should live or not. Like speaking of which in the past day, your YouTube channel was shut down for two hours. What the hell happened? Why would they shut you down? Timely conversation. Uh, Short answer is we don't know for sure. Uh, they publicly told us that uh, there was a human reviewer who made a mistake and accidentally deleted the channel, uh, deplatformed us, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is you know pretty crazy that one single employee at the company is able to essentially erase channels like that. Uh, but we got it back and, you know, a lot of it's frankly just due to the fact that we have large audiences and other platforms can make enough noise to, uh, to get their attention. 
but there's hundreds if not thousands of people on an annual basis who get their accounts on various social media platforms deleted and they have no other voice, right? They essentially just get taken off the internet. That's a serious thing. Like how many subscribers do you have on YouTube? 250,000 or so. So roughly with 250,000 subscribers and they're pretty loyal. They, they watch your stuff. What, what could you make per year with a, a YouTube channel like that? Our YouTube, we, we basically reinvest it all, but I think, um, so I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. I bet you that we make 180 to $200,000 off of it is just based on the CPMs. That could be like a living. So YouTube within one second could ruin someone's living. Like you don't get fired or anything. There's no, you know, that's horrible. So, but I'm glad you got, I'm glad it was a mistake and you got your, your platform back up and and then your, your newsletter has become very popular. People could find it. Well, we'll, we'll describe at the end and I'll describe in the intro, but you have a, a very successful newsletter. How, how many subscribers do you have the newsletter? The free list is almost at 200,000. I think we're like 196, 197,000. So it's gotten, uh, gotten pretty big. And then, uh, what about the, do you have a pay version? I, I forget if I pay or not. I don't even know. We have paid, but we don't share that number. Oh, okay, good. All right, so Bitcoin. Here's the first question I have. We've seen all the things like Jamie Dimon says it's worthless. Other economists say if it replaces gold, which it's starting to do as a reserve currency, like if it's the flight to safety when everyone's nervous, they used to go to gold. Now, if they go to Bitcoin, if they completely replace gold, that's $400,000 and that's not even counting. It'll go to a price of $400,000 and that's not even counting its use as a, as a currency. So I have questions about the whole crypto world, but let's start with Bitcoin with Bitcoin. What, what use does it have? Like I, I, like I was talking to Michael Dell, he said, okay, we, I don't know about Bitcoin, but blockchain we use for lots of things. I get the value of blockchain, but Bitcoin's so volatile. Who's going to use it as a currency and what actual utility does it have? And then we'll talk about Ethereum, which is the opposite. I think there's four main use cases of Bitcoin. There is a store value, there's a medium of exchange, there's speculation, and then there's what I'll just call uh, resistant technology uh, or freedom technology. The idea of it being a store of value is I put value in or wealth in and it appreciates over time. It either stays you know, flat and protects my purchasing power or it appreciates my purchasing power over time. Bitcoin has been the single best asset at doing that over the last decade. In the last 10 years, Bitcoin has appreciated more than 1.4 million percent, and it is up 400 percent in the last 12 months. So both on a short term and a long term basis, Bitcoin has done very, very well at protecting and appreciating your purchasing powers, a global store of value. The second thing is medium of exchange. So I exchange this value for a good or a service with another party. The Bitcoin network in the last 24 hours has settled $20 billion worth of Bitcoin transactions in a 24-hour period. Last week, it actually settled more than $30 billion in a single 24-hour period for the first time in history. So $20, $30 billion a day of transaction settlement volume puts it on track on an annualized basis to do more settlement volume than a Visa or a MasterCard to give you kind of something to compare to. Well, what, what, what does Visa settle in a 24 hour period? Visas would come in somewhere around 20 to 24 billion, I think. Like when really? you break down the numbers. 
nobody actually uh, breaks down on a per day or per hour basis. So you've got to kind of back into the numbers. And what you're really looking at is uh, what do they do on an annualized basis? And on an annual basis, what the numbers, I believe, if I, if I have them correctly, is Visa does uh, 10 to $12 uh, trillion of annual settlement volume. And so you can kind of start backing into uh, some of the numbers from there. What are people buying? Like, I don't go to the restaurant or Uber Eats and say, put it on my Bitcoin wallet. Like, what are people buying? They can buy anything they want. That's the beauty of Bitcoin is because it's an open public uh, transparent ledger, we can see that they're transferring it, right? This is on-chain settlement volume. This is not looking at uh, exchange traded volume or anything like that, but they're buying goods and services or they're making peer-to-peer transactions. But part of the beauty of it is uh, it doesn't matter what they're buying, right? The market is ultimately going to decide. People are only going to spend their Bitcoin and specifically Bitcoin because if you think of a fiat currency, you're financially incentivized to get rid of the fiat currency, right? You, you, you literally holding on to cash is like the stupidest thing you could do in financial markets. It's guaranteed to lose value. You're going to lose your purchasing power if you hold it. So you're financially incentivized to do one of two things, either invest it, get out of dollars and get into an investable asset like an equity, a commodity, real estate, et cetera, or use it to consume. So literally sell the dollar and get a good or a service. So when you think of it that way, Bitcoin is the exact opposite. Bitcoin is going to appreciate over time because of the finite supply asset as long as demand increases. And so you're actually disincentivized from spending it if you believe it's going to go up in value. And so the fact that people are still sending $20, $30 billion of daily volume means that they're overcoming the belief of, hey, this is going to appreciate in the future. And they're actually using it as a medium of exchange, which is really, really powerful when you start to think about something that will uh, allow for not only um, a store value, but also a medium of exchange. I agree, but here's where I'm skeptical. I don't know any, no one's ever come to me and said, hey, I just bought my car with Bitcoin. Like what, I still want to know, what are they, are they just buying, you know, like there's the whole crypto universe where you could buy things like NFTs and stuff like that. Are they buying things in the, outside the crypto universe? Are they buying cars or houses or, 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 going to a restaurant and spending Bitcoin. Like what are, what do you think people are actually buying? And then 30 billion a day. My guess is that it's much less buying uh, non-crypto assets like cars, houses, dinner, et cetera. A lot of that is because actually when you make those purchases, uh, especially in the United States, the tax treatment is that you have to pay capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. So there's a regulatory kind of disincentive uh, structure to do that. Instead, what is more likely happening is there's a lot of peer-to-peer transactions that are occurring. And so in those situations, I need to send you, you know, a hundred bucks. I need to send you a million dollars, $500,000, whatever, rather than use the legacy rails. Instead, I'll send you some Bitcoin. And so I think that's really what most of that volume is, is peer-to-peer transactions more so than it is, let me go and just try to buy a car or a house. But for what? Peer-to-peer for what? What are they getting from their peer? The, I don't know what it is, right? Like that's almost part of the uh, the beauty of it is uh, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but I in some way don't care. Because what we do know is the only thing that you should care about is if people were actually spending Bitcoin for nefarious purposes, there'd be a ton of uh, risk to that, a a lot of questions. And what we've now seen is uh, everyone from a former CIA director to uh, various analytics companies come out and the estimations are about 0.4%, about 40 basis points of the transactions are actually for nefarious purposes. Uh, compared to a legacy system where, you know, it's two plus trillion dollars that's laundered 
on an annual basis. And so, so, okay, but just give me an example, like what, what might be something that people are doing these peer to peer transactions for trading trading could be a really easy one. Uh, you could also see remittances being another one. You could see all sorts of, uh, global payments, uh, in terms of not necessarily a remittance. Like I'm, I work in the United States and I send money back home to, uh, my family in, let's say a South American mm. or Central American country, but also maybe, uh, I am actually going to, uh, try to transfer money to somebody from a business perspective, et cetera, uh, on the other side of the world. The whole idea of having this open monetary system is that anyone can plug into it and you can now uh, transact with them without asking permission of anybody else. Permission meaning like, Hey bank, can you authorize this wire for me to, for a million dollars to send to Anthony Pompliano? Not only authorize it, but actually execute it. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, a simple thing is just, if I want to send a wire at 8 PM at night, I can't do that. It won't settle till the morning. If I need to send the money now, well, then I'm going to have to use these other rails to do it. Cause it's open 24, seven, 365. I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long. And both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then 
to hire the best as quickly as possible. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Do you think quietly the U.S. government is using Bitcoin to, you know, send money to different, you know, armies or dictators, you know, get, get things kind of under, you know, under the radar, get, get things done? I, I definitely think the United States government is uh, holding Bitcoin at some time only because it's usually when they've confiscated it from somebody. So there's a drug bust or, you know, some sort of action. And what they then do is usually they will go and they'll auction it off. I'm unaware of any time where they're actually holding it in terms of uh, for investment purposes. I don't think that the U.S. government is likely to be uh, using it for what you and I would consider traditional payments. I have no doubt that there are law enforcement agencies that have Bitcoin on their balance sheets and they're using it to make drug purchases, et cetera, as part of like sting operations. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's what most people think of it when they think of like a government, you know, holding the asset. They're not thinking of law enforcement kind of making purchases and stuff like that. Instead, what I think they think of is, you know, did somebody put it in the central bank reserves? Did somebody buy it from an investment purpose? And, um, uh, okay. So you mentioned there were other uses. What were the two others? You said store value. Uh, the other two are speculation. Yeah, so, so you've got store value, you've got medium of exchange, you've got speculation, and then you've got what you can call like a freedom technology or a resistant technology. And so speculation is people are buying and selling it because they think it's going to go up or down in value. And that's actually a really, really important use case of Bitcoin because the price volatility usually leads to uh, some level of uh, uh, kind of user acquisition. When the price goes up a lot, what happens? The media starts to write about it. People start talking about it with their friends. It brings in a bunch of new people to say, hey, what the hell is this? And then ultimately, there's a boom and bust cycle. Uh, but every time that we go through one of those big drawdowns or one of those big bust cycles, some portion of people are left over. Think of it kind of like a mobile app. If you and I created a mobile app, we run a marketing campaign, 100 people come in through that marketing campaign, 70 of them stick around, 30 churn out. 
Okay, then we run another marketing campaign, right? Another 100 people come in, 70 stick around, 30 churn out. Now we got 140 total people using it. And you kind of continue to build this base of users. Well, same thing's happening with Bitcoin in the sense of every time the price rapidly appreciates, a bunch of new people start paying attention to it. And so it has this positive feedback loop because price goes up, people pay attention, people start to allocate, price goes up further, et cetera. Um, and so I think that is a, a key use case of speculation. And then the fourth one is this idea of freedom technology. There's a ton of people, they don't give a shit about store value, medium of exchange, any of that stuff. They just care that their government can't confiscate it from them right. or that nobody can actually, uh, when they go to the border to leave their country, nobody can stop them. Nobody can say to them, uh, give me your assets. Nobody can say you're not allowed to transact uh, because you live in a certain jurisdiction, et cetera. And so we can argue about the merits of who likes that, who doesn't. But I definitely think this idea of freedom technology is really, really crucial to understanding Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, I, you're you're in Miami. I was I was in Miami uh, uh, last weekend, and there was this conference of the Oslo Freedom Foundation. It's this human yes. rights uh, thing, and uh, there were a lot of people discuss. So this is a, an organization where they kind of present the stories of dissidents and activists of authoritarian dictatorships, and some of these stories are are horrifying. And Bitcoin is the only way these dissidents and activists can can basically do their thing and raise awareness about what is going on in their country because they can't do it in the currency of their country. Uh, uh, and they can't accept, it's hard for them to accept donations and dollars because that still goes through the traditional banking system. So Bitcoin becomes the only way they can accept uh, donations. In, in a sense, this is the only currency of revolution. Like this is how it's going to happen is through through Bitcoin. And and even NFTs, because a lot of these people are are artists and if they create an NFT that then uh, creates ongoing royalties for them, that's a good way to raise money in the long term. Absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of that freedom technology is, is incredibly important, especially as you leave kind of the Western world and you start going to other areas of the world where uh, people really, really need the ability to operate without worrying about what their government may do. Yeah, and it's funny how like people, someone just asked me actually about two hours ago, well, the SEC is going to regulate this. But you look at like all the countries that have banned crypto transactions. I always find it interesting that the day, like when Argentina banned it, the day afterwards, there was like $2 billion worth of Bitcoin transactions coming from Argentina. Like you can't ban this technology really. What's going to happen? Like, do you think the SEC is going to ban it or the US is going to ban it? No, I think the United States is going to embrace it. We just saw that uh, the country of China became super abrasive to it. They ended up uh, kicking all the miners out. They made it illegal to transact in it. And so the United States has an opportunity. Do we want to uh, replicate the views and actions of an authoritarian, centralized uh, kind of communist dictatorship? Or do we want to embody all of the freedoms and ethos uh, of individual liberty and personal freedom that America has been built on? And I think that ultimately America is going to realize that Bitcoin's good for business and we're going to do the best we can to embrace and become the global leader. I, I hope you're right because there's so many potential business models coming out of the whole crypto ecosystem that if the U.S. doesn't embrace it, there, there's, there there's, could be economic trouble. The flip side is you raise, you know, a government accepts their currency as taxes and taxes are the way a government generates revenue. And Bitcoin is always an issue. Like how can we generate, how can the government itself generate revenue from Bitcoin? Even if they create their own digital currency, that's not Bitcoin. So I'm curious about Bitcoin specifically. 
Yeah, I, th I think Bitcoin uh, can't be shut down. It's the most decentralized. It's the most secure. Uh, it's the one that's held by the largest amount of people. And ultimately, what we're watching is in a free market, the people's will is that they want Bitcoin. Uh, and so ultimately, whether you're a politician, you're a corporation, you're a financial institution, or you're an individual, you're going to realize that uh, being able to plug into the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem is probably the single greatest thing you can do, right? If you literally just say to yourself, okay, I have an energy source, let me plug into the Bitcoin network and start mining. You immediately have millions of entrepreneurs, investors, uh, builders, software engineers, marketers, uh, et cetera, all working to make you successful. If you've got a balance sheet and you plug it into the Bitcoin ecosystem by putting Bitcoin on your balance sheet, exact same thing. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world now on your team, all working to make you in a better position. If you're sitting there and you've got any sort of uh, technical resources, if you've got a payment system, you plug it into the Lightning Network, et cetera. Every single time you plug a piece of your business or a plug a piece of your life into the Bitcoin ecosystem, you immediately hire tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world to now be on your team. And it's from a cost or like a, a, a cost to the reward uh, ratio. It's the single most efficient thing you can do. You literally can set up a lightning node. You can immediately plug into the lightning network and then you onboard millions of people to start working for you. And it costs you what? A couple hundred bucks? No problem. You know, uh, it, it's interesting. Like I was talking to one hedge fund manager at one of the top banks and he was saying the fact that Bitcoin has no utility, at least in, let's say comparison to Ethereum, which is used in hundreds or thousands of, of crypto related projects is actually what makes Bitcoin valuable as, as a store of value. So what a store of value means is, okay, I'm nervous about the dollar. Maybe there's going to be inflation. I want to put my money somewhere where nobody could mess with it. There's not going to be trillions of dollars printed with it. So gold used to be that store of value, but I feel like that's an older generation. Like I once spoke at a gold conference and the youngest person there was 78 years old. And with the, I don't, I don't see like teenagers saying, oh, I can't wait to put my money in gold and make it really safe. I think they, they think of Bitcoin and, and again, what do you think of that argument that if Bitcoin replaces gold, it has like a half a million dollar price roughly. I think that that's just a milestone on the way to a much, much higher price. Uh, frankly, being able to uh, eclipse the gold market cap is, in my eyes, somewhat inevitable. Uh, some of that's because Bitcoin's going to grow. Some of that's because gold is going to contract. But I think that Bitcoin only becoming a uh, kind of a gold equivalent would be very short of what is likely to be possible. What do you think is the What do you think is the end game? The end goal. I think that it ultimately is going to rise and become a global store of value and be held by billions of people around the world. And folks are going to realize that having a currency uh, that can't be debased is super, super valuable. And so that global store of value uh, that is going to eat into tons and tons of other asset classes, it's going to eat into gold, it's going to eat into real estate, it's going to eat into fine art, uh, it's going to eat into the equity markets, et cetera. It is the apex predator of financial markets. I mean, this is where it gets really exciting, like the business models around crypto. I don't think people, I'm, I mean, everybody is just beginning to grasp. Like we're in inning zero of, or inning one of the, the, the basics of using crypto in a business model. Like how do you get exposure to the stock market with crypto? There, there are ways, and we'll talk about DeFi in a second. How do you get exposure to real estate? There are ways. The tokenization of the world, which we can explain in a second is, is uh, blows my mind every time I, I think of it. But now let's, let me ask you like Ethereum, 
So Ethereum is solves a pro- just like Bitcoin solves a problem that fiat currencies couldn't do. I feel like Ethereum solves a problem that Bitcoin couldn't do, which is let's make these smart contracts that you know use the blockchain technology in conjunction with the currency to really quickly build some of these ideas and some of these business models. So so what's what's your first take on Ethereum? Yeah, I think that uh, just like Bitcoin is the winner when it comes to monetary assets, it, it, uh, a monetary asset has a natural end state of monetary maximalism. People in the United States are U.S. dollar maximalists. People in Mexico are peso maximalists, etc. Uh, Bitcoin has achieved uh, kind of monetary maximalism in this virtual world. Uh, I think that all of the other platforms are competing from a technology standpoint meaning that Ethereum as a smart contract platform uh, is built specifically to allow for decentralized applications to be built on top. And now what we're watching is uh, kind of a pretty cutthroat competition, frankly, between Ethereum, Solana, Binance Smart Chain, Polkadot, uh, and then a bunch of layer twos, et cetera. And ultimately what uh, monetary maximalism is competing on is one key aspect of security or decentralization. So you don't necessarily need to be the fastest, you don't need to be the cheapest, you just gotta be the most secure. The thing that absolutely no one can change from a monetary policy standpoint, Bitcoin has won that. These other platforms are competing on highest throughput and lowest fees. Uh, And so frankly, I don't know yet what the end um, state is gonna be. Is there one winner? Is there 10 winners? I don't think we know yet. That's kind of my view in terms of like how they're all competing to really be that building block. Let, let me summarize a little, or let, or let me interpret in a little way and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Bitcoin sort of reminds me of, let's just say the internet, but then the Ethereum reminds me of the web. So an easy way to kind of use the protocol of the internet to make useful things. Maybe that's a way to describe these Ethereum-like uh, cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I would look at it as any smart contract platform, for, forget for a second which one, just use them as kind of a smart contract platform, is specifically built for applications to be built on top of it. And what is an application? An application allows you to interact with technology and accomplish something. Sometimes it's for entertainment purposes, sometimes it's for utility purposes, sometimes it's for productivity purposes, etc. Uh, And ultimately, what I think is going to play out here is these uh, applications have a desire initially to be decentralized. So you hear a lot about dApps or decentralized applications, etc. You can't build a decentralized application on top of a centralized service because it kind of defeats the purpose of being decentralized if you still have a single point of failure. So let me give you let me give an example. So like Dropbox stores all the all or google drive stores everybody's files pictures videos whatever but that's a centralized storage they have a bunch of servers the company dropbox controls those servers and if the government says to you give me all of anthony's photos that he's taken this year dropbox would comply decentralized might be something like a currency like filecoin where um everybody who's got a filecoin token on hundreds of thousands of computers around the world contains small pieces of all your photos. So it's completely decentralized all around the world. It's, it's a, it's a foolproof algorithm that no one could break to, to get access to those. So Filecoin wouldn't even be able to comply if somebody wanted to, if someone hacked them to see all of Anthony's photos, there's no, it's decentralized all over the world. It can't be 
and then if you, but if you need them, you have the, the public key to, to have, or the private key to have access to all of your files. If you want, you're the only one who has access. So that's an example of taking something that's centralized, which is cloud storage and decentralizing it. Correct. And I think the big question is, uh, one, how much of, uh, those applications are actually decentralized. I don't think we really know yet, right? We, we've got kind of the promise of the technology. Uh, and the reason why I say that is if you go back to Bitcoin, Bitcoin at one point started out centralized. And a lot of people say, wait, what do you mean? Well, there's one person or one group that created the Bitcoin code. They wrote the code, they created Bitcoin. They then launched it to an email list. And then people started to mine it and plug in and hold it and, and start to play with it and use it and send transactions and buy things. And, and over time, it's now become this super decentralized thing. And so the economic incentive of Bitcoin was to become more decentralized over time. Proof of work mining, the holders, et cetera. What we don't yet know is on these other platforms, are they actually incentivized to become more decentralized over time? So one of like the concerns I have in the market is take Ethereum as an example. If you are trying to pursue faster throughput and cheaper fees, the best way to become more efficient is to become more centralized, right? Remember, the, the entire industrial revolution was all around the idea of centralization. Let's be able to centrally coordinate resources so that we can give the creators of the business the most amount of leverage through labor and capital in order to be as efficient as possible and create the single most amount of productivity for their labor and capital possible. So centralization has actually been an amazing part of the story of humanity. And actually, if you are pursuing efficiency, you are going to end up being centralized because centralized entities are the most efficient. What Bitcoin did was Bitcoin said, we don't care about efficiency. We actually care about security more than anything else. It's okay if the block times are 10 minutes. It's okay if fees go a little bit higher because security is our number one pursuit, decentralization and security. And so ultimately what we, uh, I think have is this idea that if you want efficiency, you just naturally, the incentive is to become more and more centralized. And so whereas Ethereum or some of these other platforms start out super decentralized, they ultimately start to compete not on security and decentralization. They actually start to compete on high throughput and cheap fees. Well, if you're competing on high throughput, cheap fees, in order for you to become faster and cheaper, you have to become more centralized. So look at what Ethereum and Binance Smart Chain did. Binance Smart Chain just said, okay, there's Ethereum. It has a certain amount of, uh, of kind of block times and it has a certain fee structure to it in terms of what people are paying. What if we just take the same idea and we literally just centralize it hmm. and we just run it on like three or four uh, nodes and all of a sudden they sped up the block times, the fees came down, throughput went up and it was like this amazing thing. But then all of a sudden the Ethereum com community pointed and said, oh, that's not decentralized. That's centralized. And the Bitcoiners were yelling at the Ethereum community, that's not decentralized. That's centralized. And so you basically get this like everyone pointing a finger down the line as to like, oh, the, per the next person is less decentralized than me. And ultimately what's happening though is if you're optimizing for security, you're going to end up being decentralized. If you're optimizing for efficiency, you're going to end up being closer to centralized, if not completely centralized. And so I think that's the big bifurcation that's happening in the market right now. But this is, I mean, and not to get too much into the weeds with this, but like Ethereum 2.0 with proof of stake, 
for it, it keeps the decentralization going because it forces people to stake Ethereum. So they're 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 basically they're basically staking thirty two Ethereum, let's say per I don't know transaction or whatever, or or just in general in order to do proof of stake mining and earn more Ethereum. And the reason they're doing that is so that if they can approve transactions much more quickly, but if a transaction is not a good one, they have to use their own Ethereum to make up for it uh, uh, because they're and that's why they're staking some Ethereum. So that, in a sense, keeps the decentralization and may, puts miners more at risk, but they they feel it's worth it. Yeah. So that is the argument as to why it should work. The counter argument or the critique to that, and again, the market's going to decide which one of these is correct, and maybe some of them both have a hint of truth. I don't know. I, I don't pretend to be smart enough, you know, to be to kind of uh, know better than the market. But the critique of that is, okay, the people with the largest stakes will have the largest say. And so basically, rich people will now have an outside say in the network. And therefore, ultimately, the people at the top of the kind of the pyramid, they control the system. Oh, that sounds a lot like the legacy system where the rich people control the system. And so really, what ends up happening is the economic incentive to acquire assets uh, is equivalent to acquiring more control. And just over time, you're going to get kind of this like wealth inequality where uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Now, again, maybe that happens, maybe that doesn't. I don't know. But I think that we've clearly articulated here's the pro argument and here's the critique. And now what we've got to see is what does the free market say? Like, let's see what happens. Stay tuned for part two, also available today, where we talk about DeFi tokens, NFTs, securitized tokens. What's the next milestones that are going to happen for Bitcoin that are going to drive the price higher? What are the other cryptocurrencies all about? Anthony explains to me a very interesting concept about what is crypto really accomplishing in the world. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.